0: Welcome to the Recovery Stories Podcast, bringing you stories of hope, healing, and triumph over the bondage of addictions, mental health struggles, trauma, and dysfunctional family systems. Our courageous storytellers have chosen to live their journey out loud in order to show others that they don't have to suffer in silence. The stories you will hear are raw, real, and may involve graphic and triggering content. This podcast is brought to you by Promises Behavioral Health's rooted alumni community. If you or a loved one are struggling, have questions, or are ready to take the next step, call our Admission Center at 877-351-7504 or visit us online at www.promisesbehavioralhealth.com. Our team is ready and waiting to answer the call for help.
1: This is the Recovery Stories Podcast, and I'm your host, Patrick Custer. I'm so glad that you've tuned in with us today and hope you stick around to the end of this episode to find encouragement and hope through this story. Um, Today, I'm so excited because we are kicking off September's National Recovery Month. Uh, And with that, part of the way we are celebrating and recognizing uh, Recovery Month is that we are having um, a order of uh, special speakers that are coming on our show um, each week, and our first one today is Crystal Moore from Houston, Texas, who is our brand new alumni advisor over the Right Step Houston's um, alumni program there, and actually uh, today is her first day, and we're so excited. Um, I have not heard her story yet, and so it's extra special for me as well. And um, I know there are a lot of you from Houston that are watching live and are excited to hear her story too. Um, I'm excited to hear it for everybody to hear, get to know her and uh, Crystal, welcome.
2: Thanks, Patrick. Um, I'm so excited to be here. Thanks everybody for watching. Um, So I'm going to start with um, how my family was. Uh, So I guess it first started out that I think I had a pretty decent childhood and but there, like alcoholism runs and addiction runs in both sides of my family. But, um, I never was introduced to that. Um, my dad has always been a drinker, uh, of functioning. And, um, my parents, my mom was like, you know, a goody goody. <laughs> she was like a Catholic. We were raised Catholic. That was a big uh, issue whenever I was a child because my dad didn't want me to go to church. My mom did. So it was kind of like a, a struggle thing, but for the most part, like I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't grow up in a household wherever when you got like abused or, or anything like that compared to a lot of people that I know. So, um, I say to chalk it up that I've had a decent childhood. And, um, so, but things got started getting rocky for me at 12 years old because my parents decided to split up. And later on, like I, I had to catch myself because I would always use that as my excuse to, keep using or, or why I'm doing bad stuff or why I'm keep getting arrested or stuff like that. But, um, so I was around alcohol, but, uh, I have two older brothers. They're from Canada. They have different dads. They came to live with us at like four years old when I was like four or five, uh, maybe a little older than that. Um, my oldest brother, I, I saw him like dabbling with drugs and stuff and I really didn't know what it was at first. Um, and this was after I was, you know, when I was older. Uh, so he was, they, they were like smoking pot or whatever. And, and then he got caught up with like acid and stuff and started going to getting arrested all the time. And my, my middle brother never got caught, but he was doing it too. And, uh, so that really started where I was just introduced to it. And then, so I decided to start smoking weed and it's funny because, or it's not funny, but whenever I was an adult, like I really don't like pot. Like that's the one drug that I don't like. (laughs) So, um, but that's where it all started. And I think I was 12, like it must've been right when my parents split up. So I smoked with my cousin and, uh, from then on, I just kept smoking. And then I got in with the wrong crowd when I was like in seventh grade, I started hanging out with, you know, the people that were, that had, they were smoking and whatnot. And then I decided to try to be a drug dealer in seventh grade, which was a big mistake because I didn't know what I was doing Um, and tried to sell like acid or whatever. And uh, (laughs) so I was like rebelling because of, I felt like I felt like, you know, my parents screwed my life up and whatnot. But you know, after I worked the steps eventually like, and it took that long for me to realize, (laughs) which is sad, but like I have three and a half years clean. I should have mentioned that at the beginning, but um, I'm a little nervous.
1: (laughs) No worries. Hey, I have a quick question. Uh So you mentioned that your dad was kind of a functioning alcoholic Uh growing up. Uh What was the tone in your household around that? And, uh, you know, aside from you said, you know, I didn't really experience what people talk about, you know, childhood abuse and whatnot Uh um, on a grand scale. But uh, what was so how did your mom uh, approach that subject with you? Were you aware that he was an alcoholic? Yes. Um, or was that just something dad did? And, uh, yeah, what was that? And, and did that play out in a codependency struggle between him and her?
2: It, it did, but like, cause she wasn't a drinker. I mean, she would drink like occasionally, but very seldom. Um, but it was, it was toxic in a sense of like verbal, ver, I guess it was verbally abusive. So I, and I didn't, I still, I guess it's because I've heard so many of my friends tell their stories that I just say that, like I had a great childhood because I, and the thing is, is that after they split up, I would play them against one another too. So I'm mm-hmm. very spoiled. Like my dad spoiled me rotten. And that, that came, you know, back to, you know, he regretted that later on because that's, I'll get to that point though. But yeah, yeah it, it was verbally, uh, verbally abusive. Like they would always be fighting and whatnot, but not to my knowledge, any physical, um, I didn't see it, but, uh,
1: so what did you, so as far as acknowledging that there was alcoholism going on, what was the narrative that you understood at that age? You know, was it something that we, you, you just accepted or was it, you know, um, how were you taught about that? Like what was going on? You know what I mean? What was the perspective? That you got from from your mom because clearly your dad's not your mom's the one that's gonna say hey this is what's going on with your dad um yeah, we either don't talk about it or
2: I saw him like I saw it and I just I thought it was normal because my grandfather did the same thing and then mm-hmm. like I found out which this is kind of I guess toxic too for a childhood is that I used to go as a baby I used to like he used to bring me to the bars and like they were friends with the barmaids and they would like watch me wow <laughs> so, yeah so but. I've always had a really good relationship with both of my parents. You know yeah. what I mean? Been through whatever they go through um, sure. and maybe, and well, I not maybe, but I was very spoiled um, to the point to where like it, like I said, it came to backfire. Um, but I, so when I got like 15 years old, um, I was still playing the cards like again, my parents against each other. So I would, <laughs> I would be real deceiving and be like, Hey, you know, I need money for this from one of them and tell this other one, the same thing. So I'd get double. And mm-hmm. in, so I played that for as long as I could, but, um, I started, like I said, when I was um, in seventh grade, I started hanging out with the wrong crowd and it was actually my brother. He had a friend. So I became friends with the the younger sister and, um, they were trouble. <laughs> but, um, we started going to raves in Houston and stuff. So I was like big r- rave scene. Right. And I was, I would didn't even drive yet, but, um, I started doing really hard drugs and, I kind of did it backwards because even though I smoked pot at first, um, I did the really hard stuff before like actually found my DOC that I love. You know what I mean? And, and uh, so like I was doing, you know, at the raves, they do meth and, and what, am I allowed to say all that?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, (laughs) we're, we're an open book. So Um, yeah. um,
2: (laughs) So I was doing that ecstasy and all that stuff. Like when I was young and uh, I did that throughout till I was out of high school. And like, I would, and I don't know how I graduated with honors, but I'm, <laughs> I did somehow. And I missed so many days. Like though I had, I remember I had to make up, uh, like I had to stay after school for a long time because I missed like 50 something days. And I almost didn't graduate because of that. Um, cause I would just stay home and, or stay out partying or whatnot. And, yeah. uh, so when I, when I graduated high school, um, and so my dad bought me all kinds of brand new cars and stuff. When I was 16, I got like the Eddie Bauer expedition, like off the showroom floor. And it was, it was just crazy. And. Uh,
1: Do you remember when you were going through those years in in, teen, in your teen years? So <clears throat> when you feel that first, you know, changing the way you're feeling from, you know, like you said, you started on marijuana and then, you know, switched to some of the harder party drugs and what have you. So much of that for us, when we're, you know, we start out in that scene, it's a lot of the lifestyle because everybody around you is doing it. So it just feels normal. But at some point, there's a narrative that plays out in our head and we start to question ourselves and say, what are, uh, what am I doing? Like what, either you have a motivation, right? Like you're avoiding some feelings, you are um, bored or sometimes it's just, you name it. For me, I was I was bored, covering up feelings. The wind blew the wrong way one day, celebrating something. You know, I mean, it didn't matter. But, you know, so do you remember ever what going through your head, you know, early on? You know, because we, we, there's a part of us that says, I know this isn't normal because I spent my entire life up, up until now not doing any of this. Mm-hmm. And... There's always something we tell ourselves as to why we're doing it. And I'm curious if there was what yours was. Do you remember, you know, in your teen years? Or was it simply that everybody else around me is doing it and I'm kind of bored?
2: Well, I think it was a little bit of both. Um, I definitely was covering up some feelings uh, or a lot of feelings because I was upset. Like, it really did affect me when my parents got divorced. Like, I was like, I hate it. And like, they even tried to, I remember them trying to work it out for like a week and then it just didn't work and they just went their separate ways. But another thing is that like my mom ended up, uh, and she, she's never said anything to this day, but my mom ended up marrying a guy like the day that she got divorced from my dad. And like, I remember it was like two months after they, they actually split up out of the same household and the other guy like, like, um, proposed to her. And I was like, I was so upset because I was like, this don't make no sense. Obviously you were cheating on dad, but you know, I don't have any proof of that. It's just kind of common sense is what I'm thinking. But, uh, she never would admit it. So she said she doesn't, you know, she didn't, she doesn't cheat or she didn't cheat or whatever. But, um, I'm a daddy's girl too. So like that, that really hurt me. Cause I was like, man, why would you do something like that? But, um, I was only 12, you know, I didn't really understand everything. Now I'm like, I couldn't even picture them together, <laughs> but, um, yeah so it was definitely I think it was more covering up feelings, but then maybe it was like another reason like to fit into the crowd, you know, sure. like you know just to fit in and be cool or whatever and yeah. uh, so so I did that you know, and then eight I was eighteen and I started um well I was about to graduate and so i it must have been six months after I graduated is the first time I got arrested, and it was for uh, possession, and it was xanax so and uh, I forgot to mention this, but like when I was like starting at 12, like I had uh, this this cyst on my tailbone. And I so like I remember getting pain pills from the doctor, you know, but like at that age, I really didn't, you know, I I just took them as, you know, I needed it or whatever or my mm-hmm. dad gave as, you know what I mean? But um, because my point is later on, that's my DOC. So but when I first tried it, I was like, eh, you know, I'd rather do the other stuff, you know, and yeah. I don't. I'm not sure or I can't remember if that was like, I just did other things to fit into the crowd because like on the rave scene, you know, that's like meth and ecstasy and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And so doing it. So we're doing it together. And um, so, yeah, I got arrested for possession of Xanax and uh, I ended up getting that case dropped because my dad had a friend that's a doctor and how convenient yeah. is that? So he was like, it's mine, you know, right. And so we showed the, the lawyer got it dropped. Okay. So, my dad always bailed me out of any situation that I was in which which maybe it it would have been different if he didn't um
1: we all have that primary enabler you know
2: yeah yeah and my was like the one that I like so so my dad would always bail me out but he was the one that you couldn't get anything past either right because he's done he's been there and done that um my mom grew up in Canada so like she She's with nine brothers and sisters and they were raised Catholic, like I said. So it was a whole different, you know, situation for her. But um, my dad, I couldn't get anything past him. It's like, I felt like he had a radar detector and he could like pinpoint any drug that I was on at the time. But yeah. um, I'm very naive. So like I took advantage of that. So I would stay at my mom's house whenever I wanted to go out and go party all night. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was very, very deceitful. So um, sure. But- once you get in the system, like I always hear people say, once you get in the system, like and get in trouble that you never get out. And that's kind of like how I feel is pretty much what happened. So, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, I, uh, I've got arrested about, you know, 13 times that I'm not proud of, but, uh, finally, I guess it did something the last time and made me want to change, which, which did, because that's what sent me into treatment. But, um, in my twenties, my early twenties. So, like I started going to college after uh, I graduated high school and I ended up like just I was still messing with a different crowd because I would go stay at my mom's house and it was an humble. So I found another crowd to hang out with. So, you know, that's when I got into the coke and stuff. And uh, yeah, I went to college and I dropped out. I remember I dropped out and I got the money sent back to me. And then like I, I turned in my books for the money to go buy drugs. And then I lied to my parents and they were looking for the books. And like it was just crazy. So, uh, I got arrested again shortly after that. And, and I don't, I've, I don't even know what, what the dates are of my arrest, um, except for the most recent ones that I'll get to. But, uh, I got arrested the second time for theft, for stealing at a store. Okay. And, um, it, it's sad because a lot of my, uh, arrest are theft related charges because that's how I got my, my drugs because when I started getting in trouble, my dad started cutting me off like of money. (laughs) And I still had a car. So, you know, but I Mm -hmm. was like, it was crazy, Patrick. I was like wrecking my cars. Like, and I had nice cars. I kept wrecking them. I mean, I was just, I was very rebellious, but I would always use the excuse that my parents did this to me because they got divorced. You know what I mean? And now I had, I obviously like, I accept that's crazy. You can't ride that out. Like you're, yeah. You know, you're in your 20s already. That was like at 12 years old.
1: So. Um, but- Isn't it crazy how between our excuses. And the lies we tell in active addiction to get out of things. It's like somebody else is in the driver's seat. Like it's. It, 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 I mean, I that's what I felt like. I don't know if you felt the same way, but it was like it would just come out of my mouth so quickly. And I almost wouldn't even have to think about it. This altered truth. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it just came so easy, like butter, I mean, and, um, but it was almost like this, somebody else was driving my brain or a separate part of my brain that wasn't really me, it was, that was uh, saying all that, you know, right. uh, I don't know, I, I it just as you said that, I, I thought I might point that out and see if that was kind of your experience as well.
2: Oh, yeah, definitely. Because I, um, it's my dad used to tell me all the time that I should be a lawyer or a weatherman because they lie so much.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> so I was no. like, yeah, um, it was, it just seemed like everything that came out of my mouth was a lie. now this day I can admit that, right? But back then I think I believed my own lies, you know, I think absolutely. I, so, um, yeah. So I just, I kept getting arrested and, and mind you, my dad would help me like with the lawyers and stuff like that. He didn't, but he would like pay them directly. He wouldn't give me cash. So, cause he knew I was, I already played that game out. Like they, they, that out. <laughs> so that didn't work for me anymore. But, um, my, my, uh, middle brother or not middle, but you know, uh, the one that they're both older than me, but the, uh, the one in the middle, uh, he went to the Marine Corps. Right. So he, but I knew he was still doing drugs. I saw him doing drugs and whatnot and like we used to smoke weed together and after i was because i would smoke weed a little bit you know in my teenage years still um but it really just wasn't my thing and it's crazy because that's like i feel like that's the only drug that i couldn't control like i just felt so out of it on weed and Mm -hmm. uh so uh he went to the marine corps so that was a real hard uh a hard part for me too to deal with because he got uh deployed and that was like in 2003 uh you know he was on the front line and uh so so that freaked me out because I was so worried about him and I just stayed high all the time and meanwhile my oldest brother is like bringing you know he started bringing his girlfriends home and stuff and like they would use IV drugs like in front of me and I was like freaked out about the needle thing so nah. I remember one time the uh his girlfriend shot up in front of me and she just fell out. And like, I had to catch her and I was like, Oh my God, this is too much. But, um, so my brother was, was a really, really bad IV user, um, meth and he, uh, it's actually crazy because his out date of prison is my sobriety date. So, um, he, he was in and out of prison though. So I saw a lot of that. And, uh, uh like, you know, I see, we would find syringes everywhere around the house and, it was, that was crazy. And, uh, was that
1: part of your, justifi- sorry to interrupt you here, but I, I kind of a related question. Was that part of your internal justification thinking like, you know, this is a phase that I'm in in my life. I'm just having fun. I'm not anywhere near, like drug addiction is what my older brother does and is. I am just in this little phase and it's manageable. And when I'm ready, I'm going to grow up. It. And is that kind of like the narrative I- you know?
2: Definitely, because um, I would always tell everybody like this was my bragging point: is that oh, I'm not, I've done every drug, right, and I haven't, nothing has got a hold on me. I'm not addicted. Like I can easily stop anything, and I did, um, until I got on prescription,
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know, um, and found out that I do have an addictive, be you know, addictive personality or whatever. Uh, and but it, I always bragged about that. I was like, look, I can stop doing anything. Like I didn't have any type of like side effects or withdrawals from any of the other drugs that I, you know, the hard drugs. So I figured if I could bypass all the hard drugs and be okay, that I would be good. So, um, eventually like I kept getting arrested I kept getting bailed out, you know, uh, it was misdemeanor stuff. Then I got in trouble and I caught a forgery charge, which is a felony. And, uh, it was straight probation that I did and I completed the probation without getting arrested, but it's going to be on my record forever. And that was about 12 years ago, excuse me. And uh, so I did all that. And then my brother was in and out of prison. Um, I was still trying to like do good and work and whatnot. And I could not hold a job for very long. And then uh, it was always like fast food places because I had that, that charge on my record. Right. So I would use that as an excuse now. Like that's okay. I can't even look for a job because I have a a felony. They're Mm -hmm. not going to hire me you know like i would use i would play out these things like so i was still you know in that that state of mind that i you know could lie my way out of everything or just make excuses for everything cuz you know that's what we're good at and um yep so you know that didn't get me very far but uh i remember i went to the first rehab i went to was uh west oaks in houston and it's, it's kind of like it's a hospital. If people in Houston know what it is, you know, they're like, ugh, that place. Because it's, it's kind of more psyched than drug addiction. Mm-hmm. But so I went for detox because um, I got – I totally skipped this part. But I started when they were – Houston was good with the pill mills and stuff. I used to go doctor shopping because I started like, sure. you, know, you know what I can do? I'm getting in trouble, so I had to find a way out to get high. So, like, I'm on probation. I have to get something prescribed to me because they're going to drug test me and I can't pop for anything. So that, that sort of my, my big downfall into addiction because I got hooked on pain pills and mm-hmm. that is the worst thing I've ever, you know, encountered. Mm-hmm. I was taking like up to a hundred perks a day and wow. you know, I, my tolerance is so like horrible. Like, you know what I mean? Like it just builds up so quickly. Yes. And so like, I mean, we would pay people to go to the doctor, like that was when they didn't check your record either, so it was so easy to go to as many doctors as you wanted, and you know, hit the pharmacies, and it was crazy. So, I, you know, they started shutting the doctors' places down, right? So they started, you know, arresting these people and, and closing all the pill mills. So they were like really hard to come across. But I'm like really bad into this addiction, so I started like buying them and stealing and stuff for, like, you know, stealing at stores to like pay the the pill lady, so I could get some pills. <laughs> And um then then it just got so dry that nobody had any, and that, then I decided I was like, "Oh my gosh, I, I need to go get treatment. like I need help because I can't deal with the withdrawals. So I went to West Oaks and I got prescribed suboxin, and I thought that I was sober this whole time, and I and I have nothing against maintenance programs, but for me, <laughs> I you know i I felt something from it, like I got a euphoria from it, but I would never admit that while I was taking it. Um, I was always like, yeah, that don't get you high. It keeps you from getting high. Right. So, uh, I ended up staying on Suboxone for nine years. I didn't go back to pills. I didn't relapse, you know, and go back to pills, but I just stayed on Suboxone. So when I got in trouble again, I got two felony charges within two weeks of each other. And, uh, there were in different counties. So I ended up being on felony probation in two different counties. And, they were trying to Liberty County is where I live. And then one in Harris County, um, which is Houston and uh, Liberty. They were trying to, I had to do like polygraph tests for these theft charges because they, they were felonies. Now I had, you know, misdemeanors they added up because I had yeah. more than three charges. So, you know, and that's nothing that I'm proud of. I'm very like ugh about that, but it's part of my story and it, mm-hmm. it's part of where I'm at right now. And, um, I remember when Liberty County, so I was on both of them. They were like a month apart, right? So I got arrested within a week, but the, you know, like I got sentenced within a month apart. So I was going to finish both of them around the same time. And, uh, I kept failing these polygraph tests. Right. And it was like the drug. If you fell one question, you fell the whole test. And it was about the drugs, the question about the drugs I kept failing, but I was just taking my prescribed drugs. Right. And right. then, but, um, my uh po was like okay you keep filling these you know what's going on and uh she's like how long have you been on Suboxin?" and so i was like almost nine years and she was like holy shit you know like can i say that so that's exactly what she said <laughs> though okay and um
1: This we're, we're hey we're real on this uh, okay. and um
2: this, so so she went and um told the chief of probation and he's like, okay, you have two choices. You can go to safe pee, which is like a re a treatment for it's like a two year prison thing. Right.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Like a, a prison type of treatment.
1: Sure.
2: Uh, or you can, and, or, or, you know, you can go to a different treatment. And so I begged him, like, if I go to like a private, you know, pay with my insurance, can I go to a, a rehab? Like I'll go. And, and to be honest with you, like, I was so, like, I had so much resentment for my PO. But now I'm grateful that it happened because I know that I need it. Deep down, I knew I needed to get off of it. And I could have fought it probably because I wasn't abusing the and I was just taking it, right? But I I was hooked on it. And I know that I shouldn't have been on it for that many years. So, like, I just knew that deep down. But if this wouldn't have happened, I probably would have never gotten off of it, to be honest mm-hmm. with you. And, yeah. and it's like a lot of people take, they're on the mat program. Right. And they take it because they actually have pain that they have to deal with. And I didn't like, so I was picking that, like the doctor was like, how's your pain still? And I'm like, Oh, four, you know, so he would keep giving it to me. And, um, so like, there are people that do need it, you know, and, you know, it helps them, you know, and it's a good, good compared to like taking a bunch of pain pills. So, um, yep. so they, they sent me to, well, I called around and I found the right step. Uh, in Houston, on uh, West Alabama, the old location. And so I checked, like I called, and I had like two weeks to get to check in is what they gave me my PO. So I I called and I got a room, you know, they told me that a bed would be ready like the next week or whatever. So I was good with that. And I went to treatment. And here I am. (laughs) So um, I'm, I'm very grateful for the right step. Um, I, I actually was really happy when in treatment, like, you know, I mean, I had withdrawals, but they, you know, I did a taper or whatever and I had withdrawals. So I was real sick for like one week, but I'm so grateful that I did that. Like, or I'm grateful that happened to me where I was forced into it because, uh, if I wasn't, then I would still probably be using. And, um, and so, so they say, you know, like a lot of people think that if they're forced into, um, you know, treatment, that it's not going to work. And, and I halfway believe that, but like, in my case, it was like treatment or prison. So I was like, okay, but I actually started feeling good. You know, like after I got off of it, I was like really proud of myself and I started feeling really good. Like, like physically. And, uh, cause that was what I was scared of. I knew I needed to get off of it, but I was so scared of the physical withdrawals and they do suck. Cause I went, you know, I was very sick for like one week. Right. And, um, and it's probably worse than when I was on the pills. Cause I don't because it has such a long half life, but um,
1: uh, mm-hmm.
2: you know, I'm I'm just very grateful that I got you know pushed into that situation because I wouldn't be here, and I have a daughter, which I guess I left her out of the whole story, right? <laughs> oh my gosh, but um, I had a uh, I got pregnant when I was 26, and I had my little girl. She, actually, her birthday was just two days ago. Um, she's old now, and um, I used to take her, you know in and out of, uh, when I would, you know, go to the suboxone doctor and stuff. So she like, you know, I probably did, I introduced her to that, you know, that was not good. And, um, uh, you know, me and her dad, I I've left this part out too. Cause I'm like all over the place, but, uh, that yeah. thing's like drugs, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> I got with her dad when I was 21 and, um, uh, you know, we, we, that was when I was still doing like, Coke and, and all that stuff. And like, we would get high together, but like it turned into a, and this is a big part of my story too. And I can't believe I didn't, I left it out, but, uh, me and her dad were together for like 13 years. And, um, he was at the first few years were good, but then it became very physically abusive. And I was always one of those people that are one of those women that were, um, like would say, I can't believe she's putting up with that. Like I would never let a man hit me. And now I, I can vouch for them and say, you know, like, I'm sorry I thought that way because you don't know until you're in that situation. Yeah. And, um, so, so that was very, very toxic and I had never experienced that before, but I was scared to leave. Mm-hmm. And it would, it would come in waves, like, cause it depends on what he was getting high on, <laughs> I guess. And, uh, he was dabbling in other things that I had didn't, you know, I wasn't doing and I didn't know about it, but, um, like then he started smoking that synthetic stuff and it just got really, really bad. And like, he, you know, I had like my nose broken. I would always have black eyes. Like it was, it was crazy. And he started doing it in front of our daughter after I had her. And like I said, it would go in waves. So I was like hoping, you know, like, Oh my gosh, you know, he's going to change. And it never did change. You know, it would, it would stop for a little bit and then it would start again and then it would stop. And I'm like, okay, you know,
1: what finally um, got you to the place of making a change in that situation?
2: Um, honestly, working the steps. Like when I, because so was it
1: after was it post sobriety that you left
2: um, him? after wow. I was sober, and I know I don't know how I stayed sober in a physically abusive relationship because <laughs> he would hit me like in front of our daughter, um, and just go crazy, drive crazy. Like you know, he always used to tell me, "I'm gonna kill you," like you know, and I was like, "Wow, like if I wouldn't have left him, he might have killed me." Um. Mm. So uh, yeah, he, that was, that was a really bad part of my life and it was such a big chunk of my life that, uh, and I had such like really bad resentment, you know, towards him. So it was the steps when I found, when I found the right sponsor um, and I met her at the the spirit of uh, Houston, it was an AA convention. And I went through a bunch of sponsors. So when I first got out of treatment, um, I'll get back to the resentment part with him. But when I first got out of the right step, uh, I tried to find some sponsors and stuff and, you know, I would go to some meetings, but then I was like, I was still at that, you know, in that mindset that, okay, I'm sober now and I'm good. So I really don't need to work this program. You know, <laughs> like, yeah. I, I and like I was, you know, I kept having sponsors that like I didn't like them telling me what to do or I didn't like them talking to me the way they did. So I was like, mm. you know what? I don't have to deal with this. And then I was like, I would play like, play the card of like, okay, y'all have these 12 steps, but like, and they say God or higher power in them, but like, I have no connection. I've always believed in God, but I don't have like a relationship with him. You know, I, I always just prayed. And I always say this when I share my story or anything. Um, I always say that the only prayer I used to pray was like, please let the dope man be home with some pills or like, please let the doctor not run my driver's license, and catch all the other doctors I've been going to, you know? So it was all, all the wrong prayers. But, um, so like my sister introduced me to her church. Okay. And, uh, this is in Baytown and I, I started going and then I was like, man, this is great. So like, I started going to church every single week. I got on like the serve team and, and whatnot. And, you know, it was, I just found like that church is where I'm supposed to be. And, you know, church is not for everybody and that's cool. But, um, I was really happy. It's a non-denomination church because I still had that like effect from the Catholic church when I was younger and I didn't agree with it. No, nothing against the Catholic church because my whole family in the North is Catholic, but this just wasn't for me. Sure. Um, after I found that, then I like, you know, it was like a year later. Uh, so a year post sobriety and, uh, I, I was like, you know what? I'm gonna start going to these meetings again. Like I think that, you know, I'm good now. Like I know who God is. Like I'm, you know, me and God are cool. You know, so let me go, um let me go work, you know, try to find a sponsor or do some service work. So I I one of my friends from like one of the meetings that I go that I had went to, the park uh meetings, had told me about the Spirit of Houston convention. And I was like, Okay, yeah, I'm gonna come do service work. So I went the whole weekend and did service work. And, you know, stayed at the hotel and just did like the, the, the place where we, you know, served the food and whatnot. So, um, I really enjoyed it and I met a lot of people and then I met my sponsor, which was like the fifth one that I've been to, I mean, been through and, um, she's amazing. So like, I'm so excited because like, you know, we, we went to like the church that's under this, she went to the church too. And they're like under the Ark, which is like this group of churches that are run by, you know, the Ark, And -hmm. so they're all related to make it make sense. I don't know how to explain it, but, um, she went to like the church that my pastor is best friends with her pastor. So I was like, wow, this is crazy. So, um, I started talking to her and I was like, man, will you be my sponsor? Like, this is great. Like, I feel, you know, like we would be a good match. And so like, that's the first sponsor that I went through, you know, and we're actually went through the whole 12 steps. Mm. And, um, so I'm, I'm super happy about that. And then I started sponsoring women and, um, I love doing service work. I'm on the spirit of Houston committee or, or this year I haven't been because of work and we're not having a convention anyway, because of the pandemic. Sure. So, so, um, yeah, so I'm really involved in service work. I love it. Like, um, uh, I do uh, service work at the uh, CA convention for cocaine anonymous. Cause that's my home group. Uh, and I'm, I am just I love doing that, though, because, like, there's something about service work that and I used to be like, I'm not doing any work without getting paid. But service work really, like, feeds your soul. Like, not the I love it. And, um, you know, I love trying to help others and reaching out to others. So, like, when I'm asked to do something like, like, lead a meeting or come tell your story, I always, like, you know, told myself, like, try to if you're, you know, your schedule let you you know try to just not you know turn any of that down so if somebody asks me to lead a meeting i'm like sure you know just because like that's what i need to do because i feel like if i don't keep that up then i'm going to go back backwards you know what i mean so like i have to stay in it and it's it's a work in progress i mean it's a job every day to stay clean like you know that everybody knows that like it's you have to work for it you have to stay connected and i Grown to know that, like, I'm glad that I found my church family, but I'm glad I found my recovery family as well, you know, and because yeah. because I need both of them. And if I don't work the steps and I don't keep in contact with sober contacts, then I know that I'm starting to slip. So this um this whole virus thing that's been going on this year has put I think everybody into shock. So yeah. um, but after I work my,
1: my I will say right there though that one of the cornerstones that we learn in sobriety is that we are the only person that's in charge of our recovery. And I think it's been really cool to watch so many people in recovery say, how are we gonna get creative? How are we gonna uh, figure out a way to maintain that connection um, throughout the pandemic? And I know a lot, I'm not saying a lot of people haven't struggled with it, but, we've seen some really cool things happen in the recovery community uh, across the nation, across the world. Um, People connect for the first time that have never done, you know, phone or internet meetings. Um, Some really beautiful stuff has come out of such a big tragedy.
2: And I always, I always, I'm a very optimistic person. So I try to really stay positive about everything, um, you know, and just try to keep negative vibes away from me because, you know, I just don't need that badge you do anymore. So, uh, I, I try to like, you know, just keep pushing and be optimistic and stuff. And I'm very grateful for my job at the right step because, uh, I think that's gotten me through this whole, this whole year too. Cause it's kept, you know, it's kept me engaged, even though like, you know, my work is work that's different from my recovery stuff, but, but it still has you engaged with people that you can relate to so i'm very grateful for that you know cuz at least i had that and and luckily i got to work throughout this whole thing so i'm grateful for that as well but um yeah after i worked the steps is when i i uh got rid of or got rid of you know put an end to the the relationship that i was in mm-hmm. and uh you know decide like i know i deserve more cuz you know he's in, he's in addiction still so Um, I'm a single mom, you know, I have my daughter here, he lives in Louisiana. So you know, that's okay. Um, But when I made the, you know, I, I made amends with everybody. That's when I started feeling like really good. So um, I was very against the steps didn't want to work them at first. And then actually, after I worked them, it was amazing. So you know, and I'm all for people. I, I know a lot of people that I come across like at work and stuff. They don't like the the meetings. You know, there's too many meetings. They don't like the meetings and whatnot. And I'm like, okay, you know, whatever makes them stay sober is, is good. As long as you're staying sober, if it's spiritual, if you need to go through the church, like I've been through both of them. So like I was at that point once in my life, too. So that might bring you out to work the steps, you know. So, you know, whatever keeps you sober, I'm all for that.
1: Absolutely. Well, and you know, I I got sober through a 12 step program as well. And that is what um, worked for me and has kept me sober. And um, I think part of that for many of us who do get sober in the 12 steps. um, And and really, I'm just speak for myself. I was very headstrong in um, thinking that you know, really 12 steps was the only way, Mm -hmm. you know, people who weren't practicing 12 steps weren't really sober. And um, I've you know, through, uh, working in recovery for so long, uh, gotten to, um, you know, just have my perspective changed by a lot of lives that have, uh, you know, gone through smart recovery, refuge recovery, celebrate recovery. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of different modalities that do work for people. Um, and uh but you know when we talk about recovery the big thing is speaking from experience in our own experience you know and so um obviously for for you and i that's 12 steps and i can relate with you as well that you know i just wanted to point out that um that your journey through getting sober in the 12 steps is what gave you really a relationship with god and um you know for me i was I was raised in a church, I mean in the South. We were at church always Sunday night, Wednesday night, <laughs> prayer group Monday nights, and a sprinkling of special events throughout there. Like I, I was raised in it, but mm-hmm. you know, we learned that I've got to fire my parents my parents' idea of mm-hmm. God and find out who god is for myself and develop that relationship from there and i just i think the way that you explained that was a beautiful representation of uh, the gift of sobriety and recovery and and what um what's in store you know if if you want it and and seek it Um, you know one of the other things i wanted to point out as well is um i don't know if we've gone over this piece yet or not but uh, the, the three kind of pillars of our alumni program and Rooted for Promises is um, connection, support and service. So we started this national alumni program last May and um, in 2019, and one of the things we sat down and did was we said, all right, let's think of three things that are um, basic, simple, deep concepts that uh, people can wrap their mind around that are very important um, and essential, and um, that we will surround all of our efforts or base all of our efforts out of, kind of as a, as a guidepost, you know, as we, as we move on from here and we grow and ask ourselves, is this our mission, vision? And um, we came to Connection, Support, and Service. And to explain that a little bit further, we talk about, um, the services that we provide in, in our alumni program. So outside of you know the the recovery modalities, outside of twelve step and everything like that, but people who go through our our treatment programs get uh, get our connection, our service rooted for life. And um, so that's the that is the um, support side of things, right? So we're providing all all of this uh, from from our end. Uh, the different activities we do and the things that we provide. Um, and then we also act as a conduit. So the second thing is that connection piece. So, 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 so important. Um, a lot of times people come out of treatment and aren't sure what modality is right for them, that maybe 12 steps doesn't work. They went to meetings before and it didn't work, you know? And um, so one of the things that we want to do is make sure that we're providing so many ways for people to get and stay connected, um, which is another thing that you touched on. It was so important to you once you got out of treatment and you found the different ways to, to get in there. And, and uh, you know, you have your crew that calls you out that says, hey, you're not acting the same today or why did not you show up last week? That mm-hmm. connection is so imperative, and the last one is my favorite, and it sounds like it might be one of your favorites as well, which is service, because it changed my world as well. I got involved when I um, when I got out. Same thing as you, friend, dragged me into one of the um, YPOC conventions or conferences, which is the young people in Alcoholics Anonymous, um, and it was a big rowdy mess of young people that are having fun sober um being crazy staying up all night but doing everything for three days in a row centered around recovery speaker meetings um game nights all kinds of different activities and it was what lit me on fire because i saw all these people this conference these conferences are put on by people that are all volunteering like you said in addiction we're all like uh i ain't doing anything without and what I'm getting out of this right and I'm seeing all these people they're happy having fun they're sober they're doing everything on a volunteer basis and like what on earth is this the energy of those conferences whether it's YPA or you know your your regular adult conference you know Mm
0: -hmm.
1: uh, most of the big cities have these the energy is unlike anything I had ever felt before and um you know I think that that anybody who gets to experience that, it's special because it lights, it lights a fire inside of you about service, about being part um, of something bigger that really never never dies out if we let it if we choose to keep participating and so um, yeah so that's the, the other thing when we talk about service, we you know right now part of our part of our deal is that we do a once a month at every location, service projects. Um, and then we also make, outside of COVID, I don't know where we are at the, at the moment, but outside of COVID, we make opportunities available for the alumni to come back to the treatment centers and participate in different ways to give back. And, um, and so I just kind of thought that was cool. Some of the things you touched on, I just wanted to relate that back to what we're doing in Rooted and um, how special it is, so. Yes.
2: Super excited that y'all gave me the opportunity to be the alumni advisor. I'm so grateful for that. Like, I'm I'm like, is this even real? Because, like, from it's so real. <laughs> from where I started to, like, you know, where I'm at now, and I probably missed a lot of stuff in my story. I'm sorry, y'all. But uh, from where I was until now, like, is crazy. Like, my family's still in shock. They're like, okay, are you, like, is this really happening? Are you really, like, you know, doing this well? And I'm just... I'm, I'm still trying to, you know, reel it all in myself, but, um, I always tell, you know, other people because like we come across, so I've been working at the right step. I didn't mention this since December of last year. And I was a RA um, and now I'm the alumni advisor. Today's my first day. So, uh, yay. and I can't wait to have so much fun. I'm very like, you know, outgoing and blah, like crazy. <laughs> so, um, yes. I'm full of, you know, that type of energy. So I'm, I'm glad to, you know, I have a lot of alumni from, from the time that I was in uh, the right step from three and a half years ago that I still keep in contact with, you know? Um, So I'm really excited about, you know, bringing like us getting to do stuff together, like you said, post COVID whenever that may be. Um, But I'm really excited about that and I can't wait to start. And it's just, uh, hopefully introduce some more people to service work and and whatnot, because At first, even though they you know they might not be into it or whatnot, but it's really fun because you're with a crowd of people that you can relate to, so you're all having fun together, or like sober fun. And back in the day, I would never even think of what sober fun meant; like that would not be in my dictionary. There's no, mm-hmm. no, there's no such thing as sober fun. Like I always have to be high when I'm having fun. And um, yeah. but now it's, well, great- it's the
1: opposite? It's the opposite of like when we're in that lifestyle of. Uh, uh, self-serving instant gratification and what have you it's mm-hmm. such a selfish constant fulfill fulfillment that when we talk about service work it's like this feeling that I mean maybe some of us did before we got sober um, but that was so long just like when we're in addiction we can't even remember what it feels like to be sober right, right. like we, we get into sobriety you start doing service work it's this feeling that's almost couldn't be any more opposite from what we're experiencing and doing in um, in addiction and you almost can't put words to how how, how fulfilling it is
2: I, it, I absolutely agree because I, I do service work for my church as well so like and I think I probably started the church first because you know like I said I was at, I was doing my whole spiritual thing for a year before I got back into the, mm-hmm. the room and started going to meetings and whatnot. And, um, I just love how many connections I have so many friends. Like, I can't stress that enough to people to get out there and like, just get connected with other sober people. And like, there's meetings out there that are not bland. There's meetings that are fun. Like my home group, I think is hilarious. Like, I think they're, they're great. So, um, but I've built so many friendships in in recovery, you know, and all around Houston. So like, and that's a big city. So I'm I'm really grateful for that because without them, I mean, they'll, if you don't show up, like you said, they'll, they'll be calling you like, Hey, where are you at? <laughs> like what's going mm-hmm. on? And uh, you know, I'm still human. So I still need that accountability. Like, you know, sometimes I'll like, you know, veer off and I need that accountability. Like people to be like, Hey, what's going on? Um, you know? And, and sometimes I, I feel though that I used to be very narrow minded and now I'm more, you know, open to looking at other perspectives. So
1: Same here. <laughs> yes.
2: Yeah. So, you know, so now I'm grateful for that. So, yeah,
1: awesome.
2: I can't wait to. Get-
1: well, sorry, what?
2: I can't wait to get started with the alumni. I'm so excited. Absolutely.
1: I can't wait for you to as well. Um, your story is so great, and I, I really appreciate you. Um, I always like to to remember to mention on here that you know doing this is a little bit different than how we tra- traditionally have shared our stories in the past in a room, you know, with a certain amount of people. Um, It's another an added level of vulnerability that many of us haven't experienced before. So I just want to thank you for being willing um, to do this because, uh, you know, we'll never know uh, who and how many lives uh, you might help uh, guide towards uh, the hand of recovery. So I really sincerely do thank you from the bottom of my heart.
2: Thanks, Patrick. I appreciate the opportunity. And and I know I'm all over the place and I left out a bunch. So maybe the more I keep telling my story, I'll get it right.
1: It's perfect. You know, I always say it's, you know, it comes out the way it's supposed to. And, you know, we, we are a beautiful mess, you know, and I think part of the longer we stay sober, the more we learn to embrace that. And I think that's one of the the most beautiful things. So, um, you know, one last thing I wanted to ask you about in closing is, um, you know, we've got kind of a a scrolly thing at the bottom of the screen talking about if you or someone you know is struggling with addiction, eating disorders, sex addiction, or mental health issues. Um, We've got a website and a phone number that you can reach out to and either chat with online or talk to an admissions counselor uh, from Promises Behavioral Health, our parent company that owns a number of treatment centers in the United States. And um, you can talk to an uh, admissions advisor that can guide you through uh, an assessment and finding out whether or not a treatment might be right for you. And it is 100% confidential. Um, and so I just kind of wanted to ask what you would say to somebody right now that may be watching, that's questioning their path, whether or not, uh, whether or not to pull the trigger and ask for help and uh, maybe can't see on the other side of, of you know they can't see outside of today and needing to feel okay today what would you what would you say to that person
2: um i would i would just tell them like you know deep down you know there's at least for me there was a gut feeling that like i knew what i was doing was wrong and i needed to reach out for help but that's the first step the first step is that's the hardest part is the first step is reaching out but nobody the advice I would give is nobody is going to look down on you there. I mean, I always try to relate to the clients and be like, no matter how many, how much I'm clean, cause I only have three and a half years and I, and I'm say that like only, but you know, a lot of people have a lot more time, but no matter if you have three and a half hours or three and a half years, we are all same. we're the same. Nobody's better than anybody. So like, right. just don't get discouraged and don't think that you're, you know, going to disappoint anybody because you're not, you know, we always think that we're, we're fooling everybody, you know, when we're high, but you're not, you're just fooling yourself. And, um, you know, so that's a positive thing. If you need to reach out for help, that's the first step. And then, you know, that's it. And just make the call, make the call. And, you know, your family or, or whoever su- will support you, you know, um, a lot of people don't have family that will support them, but we'll support you if you know, right. we we'll, we got you. <laughs> um, yeah. You know. Just so, so don't be scared to do it. Just, you know, get help and like get connected, call us and, you know, we'll be there for you.
1: That's it. Thank you so much. And, uh, you know, I want to say one closing thought that uh, no matter how you came across our path today, what brought you to our show, whether you're a family member, a struggling person, um, a person already in recovery, uh, we're so glad that you've joined us for this hour and we appreciate that uh, you have done so. And um, thank you, Crystal, so much for sharing your story.
2: Thank you, and,
1: uh, Yeah, and happy National Recovery Month. Yes, happy that, National
2: Month. Thank you yeah, all.
1: Hope that you all celebrate, find a way to celebrate yourselves, your life, your recovery. Um, we certainly will for the rest of the month. So stay tuned and keep up with us because we've got a lot more coming to you.
0: For more information on today's episode, check out the show notes. Recovery Stories is brought to you by Promises Behavioral Health's rooted alumni community. If you or a loved one are struggling, have questions, or are ready to take the next step, call our admission center at 877-351-7504 or visit us online at www.promisesbehavioralhealth.com. Our team is ready and waiting to answer the call for help. Whether you're watching on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please share with your friends. Follow, subscribe, and and leave us a review. We are grateful for you and hope that you have been encouraged by today's episode. As always, remember you are only one decision away from a completely different life and it is never too late to start loving yourself.